Welcome to the Explorer Poet Podcast, an exploration of the blurry line separating our physical world from our abstract realities. You talk about something called a soul's high adventure. Man is born with a certain functioning. A kind of house of meaning that we dwell in. A clandestine land found underneath your floorboards. These represent a common human inheritance. A common vocabulary of rituals and symbols. Let's let you know where you are. Such and such a hero has done so and so, and that is your what am I going to do, quit? That's not an option. you got to keep on keeping on. Life's a garden, dig it. You make it work for you. You never give up. Follow your bliss. I mean, find where it is and don't be afraid to, to follow it. Conversations and stories, myths and reality, science and the gods we worship, the esoteric and the everyday. Come explore with me. My guest today is Jessica Watson-Miller, the founder of PsychCrisis.org, a nonprofit working to reform the psychiatric crisis system. Jess has a deeply personal connection to the crisis system and its flaws, and so works passionately to educate others about psychiatric crises and how to manage them, as well as designing new systems and working with current operators to improve their services. I found Jess to have a deep understanding of the issues. She's well-researched, thoughtful, and articulate. I truly enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you do as well. Okay. Hi, Jess. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's good to have you. I reached out to you because um, I came across you and your story online. And um, I think what you're doing is really interesting. And I think that the way that it's tied to your personal story is also really interesting. It, mm -hmm. I can really see that there's like a significant why for you. And mm -hmm. so um, I just thought that what you're doing is really interesting. The way you're going about it is interesting. And I just wanted to chat with you. And uh, cool. yeah, to, to jump in, I think what I would like to do is kind of hear your version of the story, maybe not like an elevator pitch, but like the, a little bit longer uh, explanation of like what it is you're doing and uh, how you got there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I'm, I'm running an organ or I'm starting an organization uh, it's called Psych Crisis. And the purpose of Psych Crisis is to change how we respond to mental health crises. Um, and I, when I say we, I mean the the sort of systemic um, way. So that if you if you have had the luck of never um, being involved with the mental health crisis system, it's a very um, intricate set of different bureaucratic institutions that respond when someone's having a mental health crisis, uh, and it's pretty dangerous, uh, and it kind of fucks people up. And I came into contact with this early on because I had a family member who um, would occasionally end up in a psych ward um, uh, when I was growing up. Um, and I never really understood what was going on. It was sort of like, a, I, I sort of had this idea that like, it must not be as bad as I think it is because the world just can't be as bad as that. Like, you know, when I went to a psych ward, I was like, there must be something I'm not understanding. Um, and then uh, a couple of years ago, um, during COVID lockdown, um, my little brother was, he just moved to New York City in February 2020, which is a very terrible time to move yeah, to New York City. That's bad timing. It's very bad timing. He had a really good run. He like got a job and he got a girlfriend and he got an apartment in like a month. And then it was March 2020. 
Um, so anyways, a couple months after that, he had a manic episode. Um, and this was when like, you weren't allowed to travel and you weren't allowed to, I basically like hopped the, the quarantine borders and like got into the wrong airport so I could get into New York city to, to go and be w- with him. And, and if you d- don't know what a manic episode is, it's kind of like if you were on a really strong stimulant that you couldn't get off. Um, so like if you imagine like an amphetamine or cocaine or something like that, um, and, um, it can happen for various reasons. It, it often happens like because of a confluence of reasons, like a, a stress, um, and also su- certain substances and stuff anyways. So, uh, we, and particularly I ended up needing to call 911 to take him to a hospital, um, which was really, it was very scary. There were armed police and stuff like that. Um, and that was the beginning of a several month saga in which he was extremely distraught, extremely like his life was sort of falling apart. He was oscillating between I've discovered all of these new things about myself and about life that I'd never knew, known before. And I have no way of making sense of this. And I'm being told I'm crazy um, by these, these doctors. Um, and he ended up Coming back to Australia, which at the time had like a two-week quarantine, you had to isolate for two weeks in order to get back, which for someone who was really in a lot of distress is a very bad um, experience. And then things were just getting worse and worse for him, and he became suicidal. He said, like, I want to end my life. And um, he ended up getting taken not once but like several times to the, the local emergency department um, and escaping several times. He didn't, he didn't want to be there. Um, and, and getting locked up in, in a psych ward, which again, like, I'm very glad if you have never had an experience of these things, cause they can be very bad places, but they're, um, places where, uh, there's a lot of, there are a lot of rules and restrictions. Um, you can't go on the internet. You can't, uh, go outside. You can't exercise really without permission. There's all of these things you can't do. Um, and he was in there for three months. And really, like, without even the kind of basic support you would expect from being at home, like even the kinds of capacities you would have to like look after yourself at home, he didn't he didn't have that. So one day he was given leave to see like maybe he'll be fine to to go back home and um and we'll try it out. And in that on that night he. Um, read something he was he was given access to the internet again all at once and read something that was really upsetting for him and he he tried to commit suicide he was taken back to the hospital again and he again escaped from the hospital and then he tried again and then that time it worked um and so he died in june 2021 um and the whole experience was one of fighting against like for myself and for my family and, and even for him of, of fighting against the system that was like meant to be helping him quote unquote, like get mentally healthy. It was, it was very clear that like the entire structure that he was, he was in was making things worse. And like, even his doctor said this, um, and, um, so I was right after he died, Australia went into, or New South Wales, where we, my family is, um, went into a several month lockdown, which was one of the first. And so I was, I had flown to Australia. And so I had a lot of time to myself because I was stuck there. 
doing not much. Um, and I was like, I was incredibly angry and just wanted to know, like, how does this, how, how could this have gotten this way? Like, how does a system exist and sustain itself this way in a way that's so contrary to the interests of the people that it is meant to serve? Um, and was this and something, that, sorry, was this something that you saw both in the United States? It was like two separate systems and you experienced a similar yeah, thing so, with both? Yeah. So when I, I have now since spent a lot of time like understanding the sort of apparatus or, or bureaucratic structure of a lot of these different systems and the way of like the, when you're trying to figure out how different or similar they are um you actually like can find their similarities in like what um like something like what are they copying so western medical systems copy each other all the time um uh, the same way that you know like western government systems like parliaments and things like that congresses um and so for example there's a set of laws that in most you know in in the UK and in the US and in Australia um are called something like the mental health act i think in california the name of the law is 50 or the number of the law is 5150 so the the slang for um or what this is 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 it's it gives a men a health professional the power to lock you up against your will um, with the intention of using that power to help you um, either stay alive like if you're if you're at risk for yourself or or st stop you know like uh, prevent you from hurting anyone else um, or to to and in order to help you recover or help yeah. you get better right but um these laws are very similar. Um, I don't know if there's just a copy paste thing going on. I actually don't know why they're they're so similar, except for the fact that like a lot of these kinds of laws are similar in in these sorts of countries. Yeah. Um. And so the if you look at the structure of a psych ward, like a public psych ward, um, and you look at the like the professional hierarchy, for example, or the layout, or or something like that, like they're very similar. Um, and a lot of that's got to do with the fact that they're built according to regulations that are very similar. Um, and they are built or, or they, they are run by people who are in professional organizations that are very similar or very international. Um, so in the same way that like tax codes in different countries yeah. rhyme. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it sounds kind of like if they're all similar from a law or structural perspective, it sounds like they're mm -hmm. all based on a similar philosophy or lack of yeah. philosophy. You're just borrowing it. It's not a lack of philosophy. I think there is a, I think there is a philosophy. Yeah, they're all based on a similar philosophy. Yeah. I can't, I actually don't have a lot of familiarity with, uh, for example, Chinese mental health law or sure. Nigerian yeah. mental health law. Those would be places that where possibly there would be something different, but it often doesn't use those words. It uses something different. Um, when, when you're, when the paradigm is something different. Right. Right. What were, well, sorry, what words do you mean? That, so that are different? like if I were, if I were trying to answer the question of like, what is, uh, mental health law like in oh, Burkina Faso or something, sure, yeah, yeah. I'm, I wouldn't necessarily be looking for those words. It might be like, what is your, and, and I don't know anything about this area. So I apologize to anything, anyone who knows much more, but like, say there's, there's, um, you know, legislation that governs like sh shamanistic practices or, gotcha. or yeah, yeah. witch doctors or something like that. And this would be covering, covering a similar area, but without the same kind of language. Like this right. is one of the things actually 
I found particularly true in mental health is so the language is incredibly dominant. Like yeah, so it's not even. Yeah. I use the word philosophy. It's probably not even philosophy. It's like what's the underlying culture around the thinking for the like what is this thing when when a mental health crisis occurs? What does the population even think that is? And then how do they think that they should even interact with it? Yeah, because you because yeah, we mean, we jump yeah. from like psych psych mm -hmm. wards to like shamanism, and mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. so obviously it from where I come from from where I sit. To me, they, they're solving similar problems. It's like just a different modality for solving a similar issue. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. So I guess what I, the, the real reason I was asking about all this was because mm -hmm. I'm curious about the, the specific issue. And it sounds like it obviously structurally, operationally, there are issues with, with uh, the way things are communicated, mm -hmm. the way things are structured and, and that. Mm -hmm. But also it seems like it stems from, they must stem from just a, a broader understanding of mental health and like a broader understanding of like how we interact with this in a society. Yeah. So, so I think that like stems from is an extremely, like, I don't want to say that the, the reason why this particular or, or, or the problem of crisis care being so damaging stems from this cultural understanding any more than it stems from um, the fact that we live in cities where we don't know each other. You know, that's another, like there, yeah. there are a bunch of things. It, it, it can kind of, you imagine that this problem where when you have a mental health crisis, someone turns up and the problem and, and that outcome can actually be really bad. You might die. Um, it's like, that's a river. And there are all these tributaries flowing into the river and how we formulate mental health is like one of those tributaries. Right. Um, and, um, but another one is how we think about like professions or how we think about the relationship between a client and a professional, you know? Yeah. Um, which comes from medicine and sort of got like copy pasted into mental health. Um, you know, that's another, you know, that there is this big, if you were to ask about like, what is the paradigm that governs this yeah. psych ward world? Um, one of them is like, you can, you can treat a mental health problem the way that you treat a medical problem, um, which is quickly, efficiently with no wasted words, yeah. you know, having the specialist do the job, which, um, would work if mental health problems were the same kind of thing. Uh, yeah. But I'm increasingly convinced that they are much less the same kind of thing that even yeah, people yeah. who are really liberal about mental health problems think they are. Like they're very, they're actually, it's like saying, you know, our river and a mountain, the, the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like yeah, they I actually think, have entirely think, different properties. I think you're getting at what my question was because it's like, okay. what is that paradigm? And, and so, yeah. Uh, and to that's the that's really the, the reason I had you on is like I want to know mm -hmm. what do you see as the given paradigm around mental health or yeah. or what is the uh, what is the tributary we should be relying on <clears throat> to solve it and then what do, you know what do you see what 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 is the paradigm that you wish that even even some people who are really educated it, from a medical yeah. perspective maybe they could see it from this paradigm and it could help help out as well so so um, the kind of problem that mental health crisis care is, is um, it's a kind of complex problem that is very counterintuitive. So asking like which tributary would we need to look at is it, it leads us kind of sort of off track. What, what we're really looking at is like, how can we influence the flow of all of the tributaries so that the river runs clear? Like that's, that's something like it. But if I do just step back and look at the paradigm aspect or the, the cultural aspect, um, then like the, the dominant mental health 
paradigm within professions, like within like psychiatrists, social workers, things like that, that they actually are quite, you know, they do have some variation, but like some of the commonalities are um, a, you know, they start with the concept of a a mental illness, um, which, and then, or occasionally reject the concept of a mental illness. So there's like a kind of, some people are like, does a mental, do mental illnesses exist? And some people like they don't exist. Um, You know, most of the dominant culture thinks that they do exist. Um, There's a, an idea that if it exists as an illness, it must have a cause and that cause can be addressed with an appropriate treatment. And our, and our job, the job of a professional is to discern the appropriate or is to figure out what kind of problem it is so that the appropriate treatment can be applied uh, and then apply that treatment. I'm not sure exactly how to describe this, but there's another component of this paradigm, which is because it brings the medical medical formulation to the forefront, it puts to the back the something else, which is also important, which is that we can tell that there's a mental health crisis because we're worried that something bad is going to happen, that this person is going to do something bad and uh, we need to stop them from doing it. So there's actually, I mean, this, people have often related psych wards to prisons uh, because they have a similar function in the sense that the reason or the justification for locking somebody up in a psych ward is they're going to hurt themselves or someone else. Um, so the way that a psych ward stops you from doing that is a very similar way to the, the way that a prison stops you know, anyone from hurting each other in the prison. There's a lot of surveillance. Um, like there's constant checks from nurses. Um, there's not a lot of privacy. There's not a lot of tolerance for doing weird shit. Um, like any of the things that I use to manage my emotional state when I'm in a difficult emotional state, like plenty of those would not be allowed in, in a psych ward. And like, I'm fine using those things in my life. Do you, do you um, mind um, yeah. giving an example of what you mean? Like what wouldn't be allowed? Yeah. Like, cause when so, I, when I think about it, what mm-hmm. you're talking about, I'm probably thinking like certain types of exercise, certain types of maybe meditation that could involve volume. Uh, yeah. So, um, I mean, a, a great creative, example, maybe I think creative off, ventures, something like that off, off the top of my head is whaling. Yeah. Like if you are in an extreme state of grief, the natural thing your body and your, your body mind wants to do is, is wail. Like if you just lost someone or, or if you've not just lost someone, but say you've only just accessed the part of you that feels the grief from something a long time ago. Yeah. The thing that, that needs to release is wailing. It's loud. It needs other people's resonance. That's the sort of thing that like, yeah, no, we cannot, cannot do. Um, yeah. The other thing is for me, I do a lot of singing. Um, when I'm like, if, if I'm, um, upset or, or just want to move something through, like, and this is something humans have done for a long time. Like we sing in religious communities, we sing, you know, like that's what so many of our songs are about and stuff. And they are this form of like connecting with something bigger than ourselves. No, also can't do that. You know, um, connecting to people that love you, you know, you can't do that in a psych ward. There's, if someone comes to visit you, you're sitting at a table, the whole format of it is is um kind of uh restricts the amount of intimacy you can have um so and you can't there's a there's one phone and you can't um take that phone anywhere so if you want to have a private conversation with someone say you're like wow like i'm really 
you know, addressing something that has come up, but I want to tell just my, my good friend who's on the phone. I don't want to tell all of these random people who I don't know. Yeah. 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 You don't have any way you can go to process that. Like, so you're kind of in this like enforced weird combination of isolation and lack of privacy. Yeah. That's Um, a, when you, when you describe it, that, that makes perfect sense that that couldn't be an environment for healing. Like obviously if you're, if you've got a manic, episode if you're suffering from something psychological you're not going to heal a thought a memory with a pill with with like a quiet room you're going to need connection you're going so to need there are actually instances in which quiet rooms are helpful so someone who is overstimulated someone who's manic right yeah being in an environment that forces them to be less is actually like it's not bad right that's yeah, yeah. that's like not a bad thing like um but having but having not, having like yeah. um, myself gone through some like what you were saying, you know mm-hmm. that you had some kind of grief or trauma, but you only come to the realization years later. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. still there. You still have to process it. And I've gone mm-hmm. through that as an adult realizing things. And then I go, oh, I need to. It was almost as if the only way I could get this out was to scream. Yeah. But where yeah, do yeah. I go? Where do I go where I need to scream like this or where mm-hmm. I can scream like this? I had to go. Maybe you have a car. Like, I, no, really what I did was I grabbed a kayak. I drove to like mm-hmm. a remote lake. I went out into the mm-hmm. middle of the lake and I just screamed for like 20 minutes. I yeah. just screamed as loud as I could. And then I felt way yeah. better. Yeah. And and I get what you're saying, like to, to not be able to do that. But then on the flip side also, yeah, if you, if you need, um, if, if you just need safety from stimulation, then yeah, the quiet, mm-hmm. that quiet would be there for you. And and there are like in in the better psych wards like um, and I have met people who are better at working like leaders of psych wards who are better at working within the constraints of the law. They are providing that. They're providing soft, safe, like a sense of an environment where because because there is you know one of the reasons people might want to go to a psych ward is they don't trust themselves and they want someone else to take right. control. And for someone who's in that state, if you're somewhere where things are quiet. There's this doctor who has a really soothing tone and they are reassuring you that everything's going to be okay. That's actually, that's potentially a really good place for you. But that's, you know, I don't know what fraction of patients that would be, but like it's, it's, it's a, it's a minority. Um, But to, to go back to, you were asking like the kind of contrast of the paradigms, um, the, so the mainstream one has this, like a mental illness is, is like a medical physical illness and also this this uh it's secretly a prison except we can't really talk about that Mm, um yeah i mean just to add a little bit more on that that is um kind of like the hospital taking on some public safety responsibilities it's saying we promise that we will lock up the people who are going to be scary and dangerous um you know we have forensic psych wards where like someone who's done something that's like very disturbing and like maybe they've killed someone or whatever but they're um you know having like deep psychological problems like society's been like yeah we'll we'll definitely lock those people up but that isn't very acknowledged it's not like that that sense of like us society has made this uh, wants this to be the case and so we're actually balancing uh, the needs of the individual against the needs of the wider group that's not quite acknowledged so it's always like ah we're doing this for your own good even though Sometimes that's like clearly not the case. Sometimes it's clearly that it's for the good of everyone else, but that's not, yeah, sort of acknowledged. Um, and I guess you could get so, the sense yeah. that maybe it's for the good of everybody else, or maybe it's just for the comfort of everybody else. Yeah, but I mean, part of the the problem with situations that lead to this kind of um, like locking someone up is is you don't know. There are some people who 
have more expertise in the area and can make better predictions. But, you know, it, it may be that people are uncomfortable because they're afraid and they're afraid because something might happen, right. but they can't tell. They don't have good calibration on it. Right. Um, so. Because they're, because yeah. you're saying there's legitimate dangers. Well, because they don't know about the legitimate, like what the legitimate dangers are. Right. Um, so what is the, what, where do you think the paradigm needs to shift? Like, how do how should people be thinking about mental health? Or, or in it, yeah. Maybe the word "should" is not healthy either. But just where, no, where, I mean, where are you in your thinking of mental health? I could, I could say, where should people? How should people be thinking about mental health crises? Uh, in order to address them more healthfully, like if they want to address them more usefully, or just um, even if even if we were having a conversation on a policy level, a law, like a legal level. What what yeah, so what needs to shift or what needs to change? I'll start at kind of a philosophical level and apologize in advance because I'm still learning how to articulate this particular paradigm. Um, it's I kind of understand it at a nonverbal level and then continuing to try and express is kind of difficult. But, okay, yeah, we'll work through um, it and then maybe this will be practice for you. So uh, there's a philosopher that I a philosopher of psychiatry whose work I adore. Her name's Sanika Dahan, and she wrote a book years ago called Inactive Psychiatry, which is building on the work of and activist philosophers who are looking at like what's a mind, what's what's a mind doing, and instead of the, um, you know, there's there's a sort of default a default model we have of a mind, like a, a you know person in America or or in Europe or something probably is like okay, so there's a there's a me and it's inside, and then there's a world and it's outside, and there's sort of like an interface layer, and we pass messages through. So there's like you know perception happens, and then information comes in. And then cognition is sort of this little barrier doing some stuff. And Sonic and Ahan's basically like, this doesn't make any sense. This is not, this is not how this works at all. Um, and, and one way to think of this is if you imagine that you're learning to play the guitar or something like that, you are using your mind to learn how to play the guitar. But what you're doing is you're interacting with the world being mostly the guitar and say like whatever instruction you're looking at quite deeply and there's this like really deep coupling between your attention and your action and that's between you and the guitar and between you and the thing you're reading like there's not a sense of internal model of the world that's inside in the head or something and then external world there's like a relational in like experience that's happening between you and the guitar that happens to involve perceptive capacities. Like, can I even feel, you know, I was learning the other day how to do bar chords and it was like learning how to even feel whether I had um, rung out the, the right um, string or, or the string had, was ringing out or whether it was right. like, muting. Um, and this is much more about like what you perceive and then what action you take in response. And there's like, there's kind of, so, so in an activist and, and like, say, Dahan would, would describe the mind as the process of making sense of the world in, in relationship with it. And, and why, the question of, like, why are you doing that is, well, to live, first of all, like, to, to survive, to get the stuff that you need, but then to flourish, like, whatever that means for whatever organism you are. And so from an, an activist perspective, looking at a mental illness by looking at a person, like a with their head that has their brain in it is like absurd. It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. It takes out all of the context or, or not even context. It takes out all of the stuff that is um, 
part of this mind activity, yeah, the which con- is the this interaction. Well, the, the relationship, you yeah. know. Um, and so like one of the results of this is, you know, you have a lot of fights in mental health research, mental health philosophy and stuff about like, well, is a mental illness really like a physiological thing or really a social thing or really a, an existential thing? Like, what is it? And she's like, it doesn't make any sense to think of it as any one of those things. You can think of a mental illness as having those dimensions, but like not having any of them separately. So if I say I have anxiety, like what that means is there's a bunch of patterns going on physiologically, like nervous system wise that correlate with anxiety, but in another person might correlate to excitement. Like they're not absolute. Yeah. And then I've got a bunch of things I'm doing in relation to my like family or friends or whatever that are making meaning that I experience anxiety and also it perpetuating that anxiety. Maybe there's a dynamic with one of my family members or friends or something that perpetuates that anxiety. And then I have all of these ideas of what a mental illness is and what anxiety is, which are making me reflect on it existentially right. that that is what's happening. So, but it's not that the mental illness is any one of those things. It's that those are different ways of looking at the same experience. Um, she kind of, she uses a metaphor of like a cake. You know, if you were to ask like, does, does the sugar cause the sweetness of the cake? It's like, well, not, not in like the way we normally think of the word cause, like the sugar is, is the sweetness in the cake, right? you know? Um, and it's not separate from the flour in the cake. So this is a little bit like, it's a little weird and funky to, um, to try and wrap your head around, uh, you know, even wrapping my head around it, I'm describing a, you know, I'm describing an act of cognition that I'm, I'm doing uh, maybe in, you know, like the way that I'm making sense of things. It definitely resonates with me from uh, what I've learned from like, you know, like Buddhist meditation teachers and yeah. stuff. Um, you know, when you're recognizing the sense of no self or whatever, it seems like you're, you're recognizing something more directly about the sense making process. Yeah. Anyways, so that's. So uh, that's, if yeah. I was to, if I was to try to say it back uh, or summar- summarize yeah. it back to you. Please do. Um, it sounds like the way that, and this, what, the way that you described the current paradigm made a lot of sense where there's the way that we see ourselves is like this, this individual and we mm-hmm. have our own, uh, we have our own mind that we call I or me. And then there's the. And it's in here. Yeah. Sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm gesturing to my head. Like <laughs> yeah. it's, it's in my physical skull. Yeah. Yeah. You, you know? do, you do sense that the wherever that thought is that's saying i you sense that it's mm-hmm. coming from your head mm-hmm. uh, at least i do um in the western world and mm-hmm. um and then you have this outer world mm-hmm. and and i see this a lot with uh particularly with people who are very extroverted or very oriented towards their outer world where they they basically it's just this outer world gives me the stimuli and whatever that stimuli gives me then i react mm-hmm. and um what you're saying is that a better way to look at this is rather than looking at it as all these individual parts that are interacting correctly or incorrectly, it's more that there are relations between all these different aspects of existence. There's mm-hmm. a relate, and this gets back to what what I was saying. Kind of the purpose of the, my podcast is is like we live in this physical reality, but mm-hmm. we also experience this. Most of our physical reality stems from some kind of abstraction. That is well in a in a modern like I'm you know I'm in a city so yeah that would be true that wouldn't be so much so true if I were out in the desert or something perhaps 
mm-hmm. yeah, you get the the more you get towards modern man and away from like the being in nature, the more you experience mm-hmm. this where the stories the, when I say abstractions, I mean like the stories mm-hmm. that we tell ourselves, the truths mm-hmm. that we tell ourselves about things that they may or may not be true. They're just we just understand them because they were part of the environment when we got here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah. so, it's it's really hard, like, uh, uh, to th- medicine is such that you you want to rely on science where you can just say, okay, this is it, right? This is the thing, and then we give you this pill, and this mm-hmm. pill takes care of that. You want thing. a procedure. You want, you, know, a you want a replicable right? procedure, you know, in an engineering sort of sense. Like the, um, but, but the issue with that is, is that usually when somebody has a laceration on their arm, mm. that laceration was caused in a similar way from everybody else's laceration that they had on their arm. And you can approach it in a similar way because we're talking about biological structure as far as and healing. And it's also a local thing. Like, so if I sew up a laceration on your arm, that's not going to affect like right. the temperature of your other foot. <laughs> right. But like. Right. When we're talking about but, mental health issues, we're talking about this this combination of stories, environment, and then and and strategies like like yeah, uh, sense making strategies survival and survival strategy. strategies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and so um, yeah, like if you so one of the things that's really interesting is if you're familiar with the the DSM is the um the manual that psychiatrists and psychologists and everybody use to diagnose mental illnesses. They kind of categorized everything. There's a bunch of debates right now amongst like the the sort of fanciest researchers about like, can we make something better than this? It's actually not that reliable. Like we, it doesn't work that well. Um, and and so there's some projects. Um, uh, one of them's called High Top, and another one's called RDoc, which are trying to create a a taxonomy of mental health problems that isn't a ca- like lots of different categories of things, like putting things in categories, but if you take the regular DSM and you take someone, you imagine, you know, I have a, like 20 people and they're in various levels of like mental health terribleness. And one of them is like extremely mentally healthy and the other is like completely and utterly falling apart. Uh, and, and you line everyone up. The one who's completely, the people, as they go towards the falling apart end, they add more diagnoses. Like people who have worse problems tend to have more diagnoses. and that doesn't sit with a model where you have a categorical problem which can be resolved with a categorical solution. It, to me, when I think about that, I feel it feels more like a whirlpool or something. I'm like, okay, someone's got a little whirlpool. Maybe that's just like they get anxious sometimes. And, and this other person has like a raging whirlpool which brings in everything else in their life. Now they have secondary and third tertiary problems and all that sort of stuff. And and they all feed on themselves. Like the, there's not one cause, then there's not one, one solution. It's, it's like, you know, there's a bunch of different forces. And in order to resolve it, you want to figure out what forces need to be neutralized and which forces yeah. need to be amplified. Yeah. Um, so which is much, a much more systems, dy- system dynamics way of looking at things, um, you know, which we're, we're more familiar with from like regular like uh, like non-human complex systems yeah and i think there's even in the psychological like i'm not a therapist at all but but um i i see this a lot online and and just talking with other with people who are therapists there there's that there's even a even in that world there's like this argument around there's a there's a camp that's geared towards processes and and uh, Mm -hmm. tools and 
just manualized treatment, manualized and like talk therapy kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It, it's um, those that stuff may be great for the people who are like the little whirlpools, but then there's yeah. like this whole other world of people who. It's easy to call it. Um, it's easy to call it like mental health, but really, there's mm-hmm. this whole world of people that have experienced trauma, and mm-hmm. they're carrying mm-hmm. things with them that. They haven't connected the story with the feeling. They haven't connected the feeling with the story. They don't even have a truth about what's happened in their mind yet. And then at some point that truth hits them and they have no choice. They have no choice but to feel it. And then we call that mental health issue. Like we call that a mental health issue. So I used to not want to use the phrase mental health. I was like, ah, it's not the like brain stuff. But if I respect a definition of mind that includes all of my processes of sense making yeah then the physiological experience of panic attack for example the physiological experience of um the kind of intense pain that is like that someone might be feeling if they're at the brink of suicide that's mental in a sense of um it's part of a process of sense making it's not mental Mm. in the sense of analytical which is normally the way that we we um link those two, you know, we normally conflate mental and analytical, but um, if you think of mental as, as part of a process of sense-making, then yeah. absolutely this, you know, I think you did a good, someone's behavior and yeah. Yeah. I think you just it, did it, a really good job of like separating that for me because mm-hmm. what I'm complaining about is the way we think about mental, like the phrase mental health. Mm-hmm. And if somebody's mm-hmm. got yeah. a mental problem, they've like, we think they're crazy. And that's, we the, already, like, that's the analytical that you're talking about. Yeah. Well, I mean, so it's actually really interesting if you think of the word crazy, like what I think that means um, informally is unpredictable. Right. Right. And that is actually true. Like if you look at someone who's in deep psychosis, they are less predictable to you or to I, unless you happen to say no have seen a lot of people in psychosis and you know a lot of context about them but they will be less predictable in part because they're not conforming to a bunch of the norms we agree on to make ourselves predictable to everyone else and and stuff um but the idea that that problem is located in their skull right yes is is i think that's the thing that that doesn't you know even if we think we don't believe that you know (laughs) we sort of still intuitively do you sort of imagine a mental health problem and you kind of mentally point like and I say mentally, I mean like I'm I'm envisioning like sort of meant like um imagining their head and then it's in their head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's some point in the brain where there's yeah, some structure yeah. in the brain or some chemical in the brain. Um, yeah, and yeah. and um like so I've done a I did a research project last year where I interviewed people who'd gone through a mental health crisis and recovered, and I wanted to know like what did they do like what was what were the commonalities like what did they learn and um for all of the people basically um, who were able to recover well, they had, it's like they had all the necessary things go right. Mm. Um, so it wasn't just, you know, that they got a particular drug or whatever. Maybe they did use a drug, but they also got that drug in the context of like their parents letting them stay with them for free yeah. for six months or something. Yeah, they or, have an environment they can heal in. They had their, their supervisor said, like actually taking time off where you're not financially pressured was like a huge aspect of um, people being able to um, recover. Um, and, and this is something that's hard because sometimes people who are in like, you know, a psychotic crisis or something, they find it hard to maintain the relationships with the people they live with, or they yeah. find it hard to maintain the job that lets them pay for the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Ironically enough, the people who think that their mental health issue is in their school might actually be the ones harboring the mental health issue. Like they might be the ones causing it if you're in the wrong environment. So well, that, that can be really tough. Well, definitely like a, you can get a kind of gaslighting feeling Yeah. Um, from, from, this is, this is a thing that like the paradigms we have about mental health are not just, they're, they're not just for, they're always for something. You know, and, and some people, you know, think they're for figuring out what the treatments are, figuring out how to respond. But they also, because they, they are about the subjective experience of people who are having, quote unquote, mental health problems, those people then use them to reflect about themselves, which becomes part of the experience of the mental health problem. Yeah. So. It, like it becomes yeah. part of their identity. Well, they're, well, they, you know, it could Maybe it, it, it's, it's different. So there are some people who see the mental health problem as um, because they see it as an illness, they see it as outside of themselves. Mm. So they see it as something, something that that's, they something that's attacking them or. Yeah. Like, I mean, if you, a few hundred years ago, you would have called that like a demon or something right. like that. You know, you, they would say they have a demon problem. And then and now we would say they have a mental illness, but they're still seeing it. They have a sense of self and then they have a separate agent or a separate um, force that they can't control. And then there are some people who see themselves as mentally sick, which particularly if they're depressed is like feeding into the problem of yeah, I think that's what having I'm, depression. Yeah. Because you start it's got telling this, yourself that this is who you are and this is what happens yeah. to you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and then there, that are, there are some people who, who deny it, like because they, they see these mm. options, you know, this is more common with people who maybe experience mania or sometimes psychosis, where they see other people attempting to label them with this as an attack on who they are. Uh, I see, because yeah. they, they say like, well, you're giving me these, this option where I have to regard my identity, myself as sick, and I don't want to do that. So like, bugger off, you know, like, mm. I'm, not, I'm not taking that label. So the label itself becomes part of the process of sense making, which is itself part of the mental health or mental like, illness. Yeah. Or disorder. I, I prefer the word disorder because it, it brings to mind this this uh, complex systems dynamics thing. It's yeah. like it's in a state of disorder, you know, the yeah, system. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, a little bit of chaos. It's mm -hmm. just a, it's just unorganized for a little bit. Or or um sometimes it can be organized in a in a pattern that is not uh, helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like you can think of someone who's like um got a persistent belief that everybody around them is poisoning them. Mm. You know. If that isn't true, like it could be true. And I think a lot of people get discounted, you know, sometimes they, they're believed to have a delusion, but actually they just believe something that's like improbable, but true. But if that isn't true, then it's, that is hindering their ability to live a life of like flourishing, right? Yeah. They can't yeah, yeah. eat with other people and they can't go out to places and rely on other people's cooking and stuff like that. So, um, sometimes it's not so much disorder as, um, order that is not well adapted. <laughs> That's very, I, I think you have a great way with words. I think you're, you. <laughs> you've obviously thought about this. I think it's fantastic. Yeah. I'm trying to do seriously. I, I'm just trying to do justice to Sanika Dahan's. Like <laughs> she really, it, it, yeah. it, like reading the book, uh, you know, it was like, it was like this process of watching some thing that was, that was a, a mental object. I had sort of just like be be dismantled and twisted yeah. apart and i'm like whoa what is going on here and it's very tricky because you don't think you believe certain things but you still do it some yeah. level because we all share it yeah yeah you know yeah yeah so yeah we all tell ourselves stories and most of us don't we don't know what stories those we even use are. those stories to participate in yeah. 
like, hey, I need mental health care. So I need to interact with this professional who uses this story and I need to tell them things in yeah, words yeah, they yeah. understand. So yeah. I think most people, most people have these stories in their head. And I think this is probably a big challenge with with mental health is that is that the the way that the human mind works is um is that we think in stories mm-hmm. and and so yeah. most people everybody thinks in stories but most people don't even know that they think in stories and so most people don't even know that they are a character in a story that they're telling themselves mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. and so a lot of times a lot of the mental challenges that i've experienced have come when those stories i come to terms with those stories and then obviously they, or the story butts up with evidence that yeah exactly the, the, the story collapses yeah. it's it's that death of the of the story mm-hmm. and then you go through that process of you know yeah resurrection or reincarnation depending on how you approach yeah. it yeah uh, what was the name of the book though that you w- w- sorry what was the her book, name and what was so her, the do- the name of the philosopher is dr sanika which is uh s-a-n-n-e-k-e dahan h-a-n-n Sorry, H A A N. Um, and then the book is called An Active Psychiatry. It's like a chunky, expensive academic book, um, which uh, <laughs> I wish more people would read. Um, it, as I said, it is kind of expensive. Um, but I'm, I'm hoping to write uh, like a something like an explain, like, a, like an introduction to people, for people who aren't professional philosophers um, to her work um, because I think it's really important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a good transition too because I want to ask you about your work. Mm-hmm. Like we've talked a lot about, you know, the issue, the story, the philosophy, mm-hmm. whatever's going yeah. on. Tell me about like sitecrisis.org. Tell me about what you're doing, uh what the goal is and what the process has been so far or the story has yeah. been so far. So, the long-term goal is that the the world and more specifically um you know, a a, a bunch of places in countries that speak English, you know, realistically, I'm not going to be able to do much in, um, in China or, or many other places like that, that these places have systematized ways of responding to someone who's in a mental health crisis that work to help the person survive, recover, and then flourish. Um, that, so, so to give kind of context on that um you know california where i am has 48 million people something like that um and i'm trying to remember the number of the kind of ballpark looking at like a few million like emergency visits a year um like in the like three something like that millions um if it's wrong i'll look it up and tell you so that's <laughs> but it's about like six percent of the population somewhere around something like that but but yeah. then you've got like um you know there are people who it's very um long long tail or or um there's a small number of people who account for a large number of the yeah yeah that makes sense yeah um and uh so these systems are often run by counties um and funded publicly um and they're sometimes funded by insurance as well so this is that's a kind of like if we if if we get to anywhere like ten percent of that twenty percent of that in fifty years then we'll be making excellent progress. Um, yeah. This is incredibly big, um, and the challenge at the moment is to create basically like a a viable working system 
that can do that at all, like can get people reliably to survive, uh, recover and flourish. Um, defining those words is part of the challenge um, yeah. because they're very political and very contentious. Yeah. Um, and so what I'm doing, the, the work that I'm doing at the moment has sort of three components. Um, the first one I'll just say briefly because it's not the highest focus, but it's basically like creating some low-hanging fruit um, resources for people who maybe are already pretty familiar with mental health crises and stuff to, to just like help them handle what's going on. So I, I wrote a, a guide to helping a loved one with a manic episode last year, which has been used in situations that like the, the guide itself goes into a level of detail that isn't conventionally given to doctors and isn't certainly most clinical professionals that I know are not familiar with these kind of details about mania um, and that is very necessary for someone who's like a loved one of, of someone having a manic episode. So um, that, um, you know, like there'll probably be a little bit more of that sort of stuff on like psychosis and, and suicide and stuff. That's one area. But then the other two are kind of interconnected and they're um, developing this prototype service, which has not only a different structure to the one to the way that the conventional systems work, but has a different way of changing itself um, so that it can develop um, the structure and change the structure more usefully. And then the second part is um, interaction and, and engagement and training with um, existing systems. And, and I'm particularly focused on newly established mobile crisis systems in the area that I'm in. Um, to also see like basically what of their cultural and training and structural components can be influenced and improved. Um, so those two th things are kind of like in tandem. Like if we end up getting a mobile crisis unit that's just extremely gung ho about doing a bunch of modifications to the structure, like great, like um, that that would be something that um, <clears throat> uh, we can roll with very easily if it ends up being that we're working with some mobile crisis teams and then also um this small prototype team um then that's the way that that works um so what i'm doing at the moment is um developing some training which i mean you mentioned like we all think in stories and it's kind of related to that basically some training that um has a new Kind of like a new epistemological paradigm or not new but it's it's new to this area um a, a paradigm about like how do we know what we know um and out of that how do we train people to know stuff um and um yeah that's one component of the the crisis pilot and the other is like fundraising and and pitching and all that sort of stuff to get it off the ground yeah, yeah. Well, I look at it like because I have a I have a background in kind of the startup world and trying to get mm -hmm. trying to get an idea from like zero to one. Mm -hmm. And I think the way that you're going about it makes a lot of sense because I found you online because you do put mm -hmm. out great content through through. Mm -hmm. Is it a Substack that you have or yeah? So yeah. the Substack sidecrisis.substack. Yeah, I thought that uh, the way I think about it, this is me in my like um, this is Josh in like story mode, but I think about it like you're actually approaching it in two ways. You're 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 like you're obviously going after the the actual functional crisis mm -hmm. wards or crisis response teams mm -hmm. for and, and and we can get to that but then you're also going about it just like your 
you're going and you're finding research, you're finding information, you're putting stuff out there. And so mm -hmm. for me, the way I think about it is you're approaching it both from that abstraction standpoint mm -hmm. that, that is important to me because I go, we're humans who we do tell ourselves stories. And so we need people out there who are feeding good information for new stories. Mm -hmm. And I think of it as like this big collective unconscious and, and somebody who discovers something needs to like scream it and scream it and scream it until the co collective kind of accept starts to accept it yeah and well so, and and i think like for me it's very important that those two happen in tandem yeah because i do think that the abstract getting sort of like disconnected from the pragmatic is part of why this uh field has gone so astray there's too and too it, much separation yeah so one of the reasons is simply that the people who pay for it are not the people that use it so the payers <laughs> yeah, are, always, you're, yeah. are generally they're um from either something like medicaid so like a big government um mm -hmm. taxpayer taxpayer funded um agency or they're from uh insurance um and th this leads to well basically like a that the people who are developing these services are trying to sell them to the buyers and not to the clients. Right. Um, you know, and, and that's like one of the ways that this has gone astray. And the second is more to do with um, the history of how administrative organizations have been run. Um, and um, I, I've been recently reading uh, a very long, thick biography of Florence Nightingale, who was, um, she's kind of known as the first nurse, but she was actually more like the first hospital administrator. Um, and she, she did a lot of the designing for like, this is how hospitals should be laid out. This is how like the procedures and protocols and stuff. And she did all of this as an invalid in her bedroom. Um, and I don't know how much this specifically had an influence, but you still do get this vibe, you know, in the culture of these big like hospitals and stuff like that, that the one who's making all the decisions is off in a room somewhere. Mm, yeah. They're imagining the reality that they're trying to affect, but they don't actually see it. Right. And they're also trying to imagine a lot of different specific realities, like lots of examples, and they're trying to generalize. Um, and I think that that approach has reached its limits and that if you're going to do this abstract reasoning, you want to then go back the next day and look at the person that you're helping and trying to yeah. try and apply it yeah. and then see how that went yeah. and, and have a much tighter feedback loop between the intention or the abstraction and then the, 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 implementation. Yeah. And this is what you're trying to do with this second thing you're talking about, which is you're trying to figure out a new model or like a new way to run or manage a, a, a psych mm -hmm. crisis center service. service. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What does that look like? Like uh, what would be different uh, from, a, from the ground up from what we see? Yeah. Today? So one of the key things um, to start with is when you look at um, the study of expertise, like of, of um, expertise in natural fields and and i've read a lot like the field i really like is, is naturalistic decision making which is um one of the main researchers is gary klein um they've been researching like how people work in the military and firefighters and stuff like that there's a big difference in how good someone can get at something when they can see the fruits of their labor as opposed to when they can't right so a firefighter like we actually have like pretty good firefighters because they're like did the fire go out we can check yeah. the fire went out or didn't go out right <laughs> yeah. Um, must be nice to have a job where you always get that validation. Exactly. Exactly. You're like, and then that also means that like, if you fail, you simply just failed. It's not like you morally something. I mean, maybe you had, there was a moral relationship to it, but like at the end of the day, it's just the fire didn't go out. Okay. We're not, now we're going to make the fire go out. 
Um, and mental health, it's like if you were to design a system to stop people from getting that information, you would design the way that modern crisis care works. Because like someone who's in crisis is going to pass through the hands, like being someone taking responsibility for them of like six different people, eight different people in like a 24, 48 hour period. None of those people know what the last person did. None of those people know what the next thing is that's going to happen. Like they don't, they have no, um, like they're, they're not going to see this one thing through it all. So there's a lack of relationship to the story of that person's journey. Um, and so the first thing is I want that to exist, you know, um, and the, the model that I really like for this, um, there's actually two models um, that are pretty that have similarities. One is more for suicide, and one is more or suicidality, and the other is for um, uh, psychosis, um, which is uh, a model where to start with, the, there's a responder, someone responds, and you keep talking to that person. That's the person who keeps responding. If you have a problem, you know, like if this crisis continues and you need someone three days later, it's that guy or that girl. Um, and so that person can not only build trust with you because you're a person and not simply an object, like you need to have time to develop trust with them, but they also begin to understand the whole context and the trajectory. They can tell like what is going on here. Um, so it's basically like rearranging the service so that the, the professional, you know, where there are professionals um, is, uh, can, can have as much situational awareness as possible. Um, that's that's one of the main things. Um, yeah, that sounds like in the in the business world or the tech world, that sounds like assigning a client, like a customer manager, to yeah. to, to, to take them from like where did they come mm -hmm. in the door and what do they need as they go along. And, yeah, and so that's, no, that's nobody kind drops of similar. Yeah. So there is a concept, there is a, a role like this. It's called a case manager. Um, but traditionally, there's a couple of problems with them. One, they're traditionally only assigned to people when things are already really bad. So you're talking about someone who's been in and out of hospital for years. Maybe they've been in jail. Maybe they've been homeless. Um, like they are not, their life is falling, has fallen apart quite a bit. And then the case manager is brought in at that point. Um, and it, things get a lot harder to, to deal with. And then second thing is that the case manager relationship is still this, um, I want to say like, like object relationship. Like, ah, I have a client and I must make them do this thing. There's less of a two-way street in the culture of case management. Um, and so like a lot of people don't like case managers because they're like, there's this guy who's just yeah. like always on my tail and like, I don't want to do the stuff he wants me to do. Um, and case managers, you know, have a really hard job and they get burnt out and stuff. So, but the, the structure of it is like, starts to be like in the right direction. Um, so yeah, that's. Yeah, that makes sense. And then the idea that, you are, you have ideas, you're taking research, you're putting it in, but then the idea that this is not fixed, like let's adjust, let's iterate as time goes on. Cause it's that iteration that's going to get you to a point where this is actually working for people. Yeah. So there's, there's actually two levels of iteration. One is within, say you, you know, like say there's a, a teenager who's feeling suicidal and they're having a bad relationship with their parents and, you know, um, whoever's the professional that's responding to them, there's a process of iteration in the relationship between the professional and the, the teenager. Um, and that's one like level in which the creativity occurs. And then the other is 
on the level of the system that allows this professional to be there, is that best supporting these clients getting to recover and flourish? Right. Um, and some of that has to do with the direct relationship and some of that doesn't. Some of that could be like, how do we pay people? The other could be like, how do we roster them? How do we account for capacity planning? Stuff like that. Um, so, yeah. How do we train them? That's a big one. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting because a lot of it has to do, like you're up against, uh, you're up against like a, not just the issue of what is mental health, but you're up against how do you put together a structure to, to help. And so you're, you're definitely, yeah. you're along that hero's <laughs> journey because you have a long ways to go. Yeah. 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 Um, but um, yeah, one of the things that has been interesting in this is learning, like, I, I think I'm kind of convinced that you know, to the extent that this succeeds, it will succeed because it um, re recruited people who already care about it on the basis of what they're trying to do or like what matters to them. And there are already, there are a lot of people trying to influence the mental health system. Like yeah. there's, there's whole disparate movements that are working against each other. And then there are a lot of people who work in it who are trying to um, influence it. And so like, you know, this thing with like mobile crisis uh, teams and stuff like that is is an opportunity that didn't exist a couple of years ago where like now in the Bay area where I am, there are 40, at least 40. And I heard about some more today, crisis teams, mobile crisis teams. Um, and it's like, if I can work with them, then that's like amplifying the reach of this desire, this intention. Yeah. Um, and how, how know, responsive aligns with them. Sorry. How responsive have they been? Well, the ones I've talked to thus far have been pretty responsive, but I have, I'm, I'm still TBD. I will get, you know, I can get back to you on that. We're, I'm okay. running an event okay. in a little while um, to hopefully connect with them um, pretty soon. But it, it is tricky. You have some kinds of like social services agencies that are not really responsive at all, in part because they, they want to, they, they, there's a kind of like security or survival thing. It's like, I need to keep the job that I have. Yeah. I want to just do the, you know, it's like if you've managed to survive in a system that really rewards conformity, then you're going to keep doing that because that's what you need to do to survive. So Yeah, I understand that. But there are people, yeah, very particularly, there are people who are not I like that. Okay, cool. Um, we are up against our hour. It's been fantastic. Mm -hmm. I think this has been mm -hmm. really interesting, really in engaging. Mm -hmm. um, I want to give you a chance to share whatever you want to share as far as uh, promoting yourself. I know you have, you've recently started a podcast related to this. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? You want to yeah, talk about yeah. that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so the podcast is a public conversation, um, which is asking the question of uh, how do we make the crisis system better? What do we need? What is in the way? Um, and, and where do we need to go? And the way that I've been approaching that is, um, finding people who are like have deep expertise in some aspect of that and then just getting everything I can tell you know everything I can learn from them and we can learn from them and having that conversation be public so that there is a kind of you know a, ki a kind of culture that's developing around around yeah, this way of around yeah. talking about systems change and so um like one of the people I have on is uh the leader of this organization in, in um, the UK that runs a, a different model of um, suicide crisis response. Um, I've got someone who, who worked on implementing a relational model in New York City um, and someone else who uses relational models like inside an ER. Um, so if you, yeah, I guess if, if you're interested in um, 
like participating in that conversation about like what do we need to do and and how do we get there uh then listen to them and offer you know comments and thoughts and stuff um i guess you have show notes we could put them and put it in the show notes <laughs> yeah yeah i will for sure great yeah, yeah um and then yeah and then if you want to follow side crisis the main website is psychcrisis.org um and if you need the mania guide that's also there uh please use it and recommend it to people that need it um and um and then if you want to follow the uh, the goings on of the organization or, or learn more about what um i've been up to and other members have been up to then sitecrisis.substack.com okay so yeah okay awesome well i think what you're doing is great like i know that um it's it's unfortunate that a lot of the great things that come from people stem from something that was difficult or tragic but this is something that the yeah, world needs yeah. and i think that it's inspiring mm-hmm. to see somebody like you go after it and tackle it. And um, I wanted to tell you one other thing because I was reading I was reading one of your blog posts recently because uh-huh. as I was yeah. preparing, I was just going back and reading through things. And right. you had this one post where you had mentioned something about going from a, a world of like fundraising where you have to be professional and talk like in a certain way yeah. to a world where you're like sharing who you are to the public mm-hmm. and it's like personal and raw different level it's, of vulnerability exactly and i think what i want to say is um the world needs more of that and i think mm-hmm. that that's the way to that's the way to approach it because that corporate mind like that um we need you know our ties need to be straightened and we need to know we need to be politically correct and we need to be formal and we need to do this that's the world that keeps everything like in the past mm. and yeah. the the world that um that comes out of you being you like yes mm. you're you're obviously an intelligent well articulated mm. driven person who can go accomplish mm. things but obviously you're also a human so if you have a heart mm. like the ability mm. to express that i just think that's that's where this it it just goes right in line with this whole idea of your sharing. Like this is about us all being people and having relationships mm-hmm. with each other and with the world. And I think yes. uh, you keep being you and I, I think you're going to be successful. Well, and then I have a request for people listening, which is if you see people being that way, then help them be that way or help them encourage yes. them. Cause I think one of the bottlenecks is often the, the fear that you will lose the things that you desperately are trying to accomplish by you know, being more open. Yeah, and yeah. so if you have the option to support someone who's being open and also <laughs> driven, then like, go do it. And let's like change the way we think about it. Yeah. I honestly think not to carry on too much about this, but I honestly mm-hmm. think this is the way that the, this is the direction the world's going where mm-hmm. people who can be genuine and be honest, they're going to attract a lot more people than, yeah, because the like with technology, social media, the way that things are like, you can't not be a genuine person. And, um, cause you're going to get called out for it if you're not genuine at some point. But I think that yeah. I just want to say like being vulnerable on your blog, like, I think it's, mm-hmm. it's great. I think you're doing a good mm-hmm. job. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> okay, That's Jess. Fine. Well, I appreciate it. Bye. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Explorer Poet Podcast, exploring the blurry line between our physical world and our abstract realities. I hope you find this and every episode worthwhile. To find links to my guest websites and social media accounts, and for all Explorer Poet content, please visit my website, explorerpoet.com. You can also follow on Instagram at explorerpoet or on Twitter at explorerpoetpod. If you have comments or suggestions, please send an email to explorerpoet at gmail.com. Please follow and rate the podcast on your favorite app. And if you really, really want to be supportive, please share an episode with a friend. 
Thanks again. <laughs>